imitate Christ and build up your neighbor to advance the gospel. But be careful, don't fall in the trap of legalism. During the last three years, I've been thinking a lot about washing hands. We go, Haswan, wash your hands. We go outside, come back in, we wash our hands. And it's crazy to think about that this practice that we do so much during this time, and especially if we are in a hospital, that was not the case before the early 19th century. It was not a common practice to wash your hands as a patient, as a nurse, and even a doctor. Ignaz Samowise was an obstetrician from Hungary who worked in a well-funded, big, super-rich hospital, which was also a research facility during that time. It was called Vienna General Hospital. He noticed the death rate of mothers giving birth at this large institution was double the death rate of a smaller clinic that was used to supply free health care for poor women. That's crazy. That's so crazy. It was reported that these wealthier women would actually beg this big institution, I don't want to go here. Can I go to that, that smaller clinic, the one that's free, the one for the poor, the poor women? And so Ignaz Samowise looked into this disparity and he ran an experiment between the hospitals. He noticed a big difference in the preparation where the smaller, less funded hospitals washed their hands before treating the women. And so like a good scientist, Samowise instituted hand washing and maternal mortality rates dropped 90%. This was an amazing feat. And Samowise then instituted hand washing in all of the hospitals in, in Vienna. Then he instituted all the, the hand washing in Hungary. And then he, he thereby really reducing the maternal death rates through the whole country of Hungary. Actually, that didn't happen. That did not happen. When he brought his findings to the head researchers, the doctors chastised him because he didn't use the proper channels to run an experiment. And they also thought that he was insinuating that well-funded, big, rich hospital was dirty. Why would the doctors have to clean their hands if the place was already clean? So he's insinuating that they're dirty, that they're, they, they can't even keep their hospitals clean. So these researchers, when they listened to Samowise, they were falling into a trap. They weren't really listening to him. They fell into this trap of legalism, which legalism is to impose restrictions beyond the scope of guidelines or laws and take it to an exaggerated form. In our passage today, 
we will be looking at a potential pitfall of legalism in our faith. And we are continuing our reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, um, which Joe preached on a couple of weeks ago. And he, Joe shared with us that Christians are to live a faithful life in an idolatrous world. His passage was about idols and the sin of idolatry, but in this next phase of the chapter 10, Paul actually addresses a very different issue that's very specific to the context of Corinthians. It's going to be sounding a little bit removed from our situation here in Shanghai, but bear with me because Paul has wisdom to share with us all. This section deals with meat that was sacrificed to idols being eaten in the privacy of one's home. When we read this text, Paul is first going to give us advice to that problem with sacrificed meat. And that's going to be in verses 23 through 26. Then he's going to give us two scenarios. When to eat the meat, when not to eat the meat. That's going to be verses 27 through 30. And at the end of this passage, he's going to restate his advice, but link it explicitly to Christ. You can follow along with me with your bulletin or on, with another way of reading God's word. Um, I'm going to read the verses aloud. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. It's interesting that Paul does advise us to eat the sacrificed meat at some times, with a caveat. And that brings me to my main point today. My main point is, imitate Christ and build up your neighbor to advance the gospel. But be careful, don't fall in the trap of legalism. And in keeping with the tradition of our church, I will be organizing this talk in three parts, parallel to Paul's constructed argument. First, we will go over Paul's advice to the Corinthian problem which we can title, Build Up. This is going to be correlated with verses 27, 23 through 27. Second, we will look at Paul's scenarios, which is 
the trap of legalism. That's our second point, the trap of legalism, found in verses 27 to 30. And lastly, we will connect Paul's advice with an explicit link to Christ and the gospel which corresponds to imitate Christ. Let's start with our first section, build up. In verses 23 through 26, let's start with verse 23. You could follow along again. All things are lawful, but, all, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. When I was tasked with explicating this passage, I took a look at the first verse of verse 23, and I saw that phrase, all things are lawful. And I thought, that doesn't make any sense. How could all things be lawful? Can throwing a pig out the window be lawful? No, that's crazy. But our brother Peter, he preached with us back in March. And this is one of the reasons why you should stay. Because of times like these where we don't actually know what is being written, we can be helped by a mature Christian brother. Thank you, Peter. And Peter preached on 1 Corinthians 6, and that phrase is repeated in verses 12 through 13. That's, and I'll read it for you. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. In our verse, Paul made the change from dominated by anything to not all things build up. Peter preached to us that this phrase, all things are lawful, was a common one used among Corinthians to justify their individual actions without regard to the influence it has on the world around us. It's kind of like that Western idea of individual rights taken to an extreme. Paul's parallel structure using the Corinthian colloquial phrase and coupling it with the word not signals to us that those things are helpful, helpful and those things that build up are the things that we need to strive to do. So building up and helping others, how does this relate to the problem of eating sacrificed meat? Let's read on. Eat whatever is sold in the market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We can see that the Corinthian phrase relates to individual self-serving ideals among the Corinthians, whereas the latter portions point back to building up and helping our neighbors. We are not, we are not to seek our own good, but the good of our neighbors. Instead of self-promotion, we need to exercise self-effacement, humility over ego. This is a brilliant way to bring forth wisdom from a specific faith question that concerned the Christian church, and Paul connects self-effacement and humility with eating whatever is being sold in the meat market. Why? Why does he do this? Simply put, it's theologically unnecessary and potentially rude to the person hosting you. In verse 26, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof harkens back to Psalm 24, verse 1. I'll read it to you. It says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, 
the world and those who dwell therein. Paul quotes this to explain that since God owns everything, foods are included. So, no problem with eating the food on this earth, even if it was sacrificed to idols. So the wisdom here that Paul brings forth is not just that we could eat any meat, even if it is sacrificed to other gods, but we are to view how the host would feel. We are to build that person up and help them see their need for the gospel. Now let's look at verses 27 through 30 and see the two scenarios that Paul brings us to show us how to apply his advice. And he warns us with this trap of legalism. And this brings us to the second point, the trap of legalism. Verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, meaning you got to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Notice Paul repeats the word conscience. Whose conscience? In the first scenario, Paul gives us the go-ahead to eat the meat. Since the meat was sacrificed before and the very act of eating the meat is not actually an act of sacrificing to gods. But the second scenario is the one where we are not to eat the meat because the act is explicitly stated from the host that it has been offered in sacrifice. This brings out Paul's idea for whose conscience we are really to focus on, which is not you, but the host. In the second scenario, the difference is about the conscience of the host. Do not eat the meat when it would appear to be approving of idol worship. Because you're eating with a non-believer who has told you that the meat you are about to eat is sacrificed to an idol. If someone who worships idols sees a Christian man eating meat that's been sacrificed, and they've said this meat has been sacrificed to other gods, what might they think about Christianity? What is the conscience? Eating the meat might confuse them. They might think that Christianity includes idol worship, that Jesus is just another addition to the pantheon of little g-gods, rather than the true son of God. Or they may end up thinking that Christian belief makes no difference to how the Christian believer actually lives out their faith. The first scenario shows us the course of building our neighbor is not to be legalistic because the host is acknowledging an offering aspect to the sacrifice. The host is, excuse me, the host is not explicitly acknowledging 
the aspect of it being sacrificed. But in the second scenario, the host is actually explicitly making the connection. This was sacrificed. This act of it eating us is a sacrifice. So that second scenario shows us how we ought to care for our neighbor and how they see us because they see us as ambassadors to the gospel. They see us as the one who has an image of Christ. That's the definition of being a Christian. Story time. When I was traveling with my in-laws, uh, in, when I was traveling to my in-laws in Xiangtan, Hunan, my father-in-law brought some sticks and some paper. They told me that they were going to burn these sticks and paper because they were going to remember my wife's grandfather who passed away. They asked my wife and I to burn these sticks and to burn some sticks, the incense, um, for to honor his memory. Now this is a little bit complicated because if I burn the sticks, it could be a signal to ancestral worship. If I don't burn the sticks, and if I don't burn the sticks, I could be offending my host. And this scenario seems like it's squared between what Paul was writing about. It could be offensive to the host, which was my father-in-law, and it could be something that I might be able to do without any regard, but I don't want to give him the impression that Christianity is okay with idol worship. I'm going to do something that I think a lot of pastors would not do. I'm not going to give you an answer to that question because I'm not a theologian. I'm not totally a pastor. I am a brother trying to make sense of this word. So what I'm going to tell you is what my heart was like. What was going on in my heart? If you want to talk to me about this situation, I think I would be open to it during dinner time. I think it would be a great time even to chat about your situations too. Maybe you had a situation similar to this. But I want to talk to you about what I did and how my heart, how I was showing my heart to my father. I actually fell into the trap of legalism. I said no, and my father-in-law pleaded with me that it was just the tradition, not at worship. But my reason for saying no was less about my father-in-law, my father-in-law's conscience, and more about my own self-preservation. I'm still pondering my actions, but what was really wrong with my heart was thinking about my was not thinking about my father-in-law. I was thinking about how he perceived me. I wanted to look like one of those good Christians. I offended my father-in-law. Instead of bringing myself lower than my father-in-law, I decided to peer down at him for my own Christian stance, which is opposite of what Christ set for us. I didn't build up my father-in-law. I depleted his spirit thus furthering him away from the true message of the gospel, which is to bring us up. Christ came to earth to bring us up, to save us. Think about your own lives and the practical questions of faith that non-believers came to you with. Are you trying to appear like that 
good Christian? Or are you actually trying to help and build up your neighbor and bring them closer to the truth of the gospel to point them to Christ? I think this would be a great opportunity to discuss this during dinner time or during the week. So if it's not following a rule or enjoying freedom, what should direct a Christian's actions? Now let's look at Paul's link to Christ in his advice. So we discussed the need for building up our neighbors. We have identified the potential trap of legalism. And now we are at the first word of my main point. You remember it? Imitate. Let's read verses 31 until the next chapter, verse 1 in chapter 11. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me. And when I read that, I'm not saying be imitators of Gabriel, Francisco, Omeda. Definitely not. Don't imitate me. I would say, I'm reading this in Paul's words. Be imitators of Paul as he was of Christ. And I change that right now because I believe that Paul put himself in an immense, vulnerable state. I don't think I could ever write that. Be imitate, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But Paul did. So part of bringing glory to God involves enabling others to see His glory. The issue with the Corinthians eating sacrificed meat is not one of the South, but of the others. We as brothers and sisters in Christ should desire to not act in any way which causes others to misunderstand God's glory and ultimately the good news that saves us all. Now, when Paul says, I try to please everyone in everything I do, don't take that literally because then you'll go crazy. It's not that, it's not that we are to live to please others but we ought to consider God first, which is in verse 31. Do all to the glory of God. And that song we just sang, all glory be to Christ. So our, our act in pleasing others stems from our motivation to bring glory to God. Paul ends his argument with a call to action, saying imitate him because he imitates Christ. Some of you might not know who Paul is. A lot of you probably do know who Paul is. And when you read this, it just seems like such a prideful thing to say. So prideful. Imitate me. But when we look at Paul's ministry, I believe Paul was right on it. He's right on the money. He challenged the Corinthians and us as readers to imitate him because he genuinely imitates Christ. 
And one of the best illustrations of this imitation is written by Paul E. Miller in his book called The J-Curve. The J-Curve is coming across, and sorry, we don't have that at the book table. The J-Curve is coming across a problem and dying to ourselves, which reflects Jesus dying for us, like this. We come across from a problem, problem gets worse, and we die to our own self. And then, as a substitutionary love, like Christ substituted himself for us, we bring others up. J-curve. Jesus came to earth, was met with disdain from legalistic Pharisees, Sadducees, and the like, died for our sins as substitution, and rose again, bringing Christians and completing that J-curve. This is the essence of grace, the undeserved gift that God gave us through sacrifice and resurrection of His Son, Jesus. So when looking at this sacrifice meat, we are to address it and die to our own pride. Not like what I did, where I was trying to be higher than my father, my father-in-law. We want to bring others up with that same substitutionary love that Jesus had for us, has for us. Let's go back to when Paul says, imitate me because he imitates Christ. I believe he does say this because he does, does ex- show and exemplify this substitutionary love in the J-curve image. And when you read Acts 16, verses 19 through 24, I'm not going to read it, but you're going to get a picture of the character that Paul shows as he tried to imitate Christ. I'm going to summarize it for you, some of these points. While summarizing, I'm going to show you the J-curve. This was when Paul and Silas were casting out a demon from a slave girl. That actually wasn't the problem. The problem was when the Romans saw this. So the Romans saw this, and this is how they responded to him. They slandered him. They judged him without trial. They attacked him. They beat him with rods. They jailed him, and they put him in stocks. He's at the bottom of the J-curve. Now, Paul could have used that Roman citizenship he had handy as a get-out-of-jail-free card. But he didn't. He used his imprisonment to glorify God. He used his imprisonment as an opportunity to bring glory to others. Paul starts to rise in the J-curve, using this point as an opportunity. So he's at bottom. He starts worshiping. He starts praying. Prisoners start listening to him. There's an earthquake. The gates, the prison, the prison flies open. Prisoners stay in the prison, which is crazy. Paul prevents a suicide from a jailer, and the jailer becomes saved. Paul is washed and fed, and a Roman citizen claims Paul, and there was an apology issue to Paul. Now the last part, usually when you're instituting the J-curve, 
you might not be getting out the good end of it. He, in this instance, he did. He, he actually ended up well. But that rising part was him bringing others up, the jailer, the prisoners, the Roman citizens who viewed him. He was bringing them up instead of bringing them down with him. Paul knew very well what it meant to ask the Corinthians to imitate him. Paul genuinely tried to follow Christ in that he curtails his own liberty to love others and to love God. As demonstrated as his, with his J-curve, when confronting practical questions of faith involving non-believers, we are to imitate Christ and build up our neighbor with the purpose of, adva of advancing the gospel. But be vigilant. Do not fall into this trap of legalism. Imitate Paul and understand that the Christian life is at times lowering yourself and building others up just as Christ lowered up himself to save us. When we are confronting with this, these problems, especially with non-believers, we look to lead others to the gospel and not to look within our own pride. Falling into the trap of legalism is like making an absolute rule, which the Bible does not, like I did with my father-in-law. That scenario is still in question. And keeping it is doing something which allows us to feel that we are doing good. So I felt, because I told my father-in-law, no, I don't want to burn the incense, that I was doing something good. That I can be good, a good Christian. Sometimes you guys might be doing that too. I'm not going to drink this beer because I want to be a good Christian. I'm not going to buy something new. I'm going to be a good Christian. Now that's not bad in itself. It's your heart. If you're doing those things to make yourself looking good, you're being self-centered, not God-centered. The motivation of legalism is pride. The antidote to legalism is self-effacement. Allow me to go back to, to Ignaz Samowise, that guy who tried to get that hospital to wash their hands, and they said no because it would insinuate that the, the hospital they are in is dirty because they would need to wash their hands. Now, the leaders and other researchers and the doctors at that hospital were anathema to Paul's teaching to us. Instead of lowering themselves, they put themselves above Samuelize and eventually got him fired. And because they felt that their credentials were threatened, they didn't just fire him. They actually uh, made it so that he couldn't find an equivalent post elsewhere. Instead of imitating Christ and dying to their pride, they doubled down on that legalistic behavior and forced him 
um, to not be able to find a job, Samwise eventually had a nervous breakdown. And he was put into a mental institution. Years later, decades later, he cut himself. The host and the doctor treating him did not wash his hands. So Samwise got gangrene, an infection which ironically, if they would have listened to him in the first place, could have saved his life. And he died. That's an extreme example of being self-centered and erring on self-preservation as opposed to bringing someone up with you. And those doctors and researchers did not follow Paul's example. So now as we close, when you go home, think of some real-life circumstances where acting out of love for others means giving up Christian liberty. Maybe not drinking alcohol with not unbelievers or not, spending your or not spending your money on some new thing or not watching TV, uh, some sort of TV show. But then I want you also to think about how you could end up being legalistic and how you can be erring on the side of self-preservation as opposed to being humble. Remember the J-curve. You come across a problem, you die to yourself, and you bring others with you. And remember, imitate Christ, build up your neighbors, but be careful with the trap of legalism. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words and your wisdom through Paul. And Lord, we thank you for his motto that he embodied the idea of dying to himself and bringing others up. Help us as we go about this week that we can actually bring others up even when we are down in our own J-curve, at the bottom of our own J-curve. Help us to bring others up just as you have lifted us up through your son's substitutionary love, through his resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.